Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we open up our Bibles, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, and that by your Spirit, you would speak to us, and that you'd make us attentive to your voice, and that you would strengthen and nourish our faith, and where we are feeling discouraged or disheartened, that you might lift us up with your joy. And we pray, God, that you would do this among us by your Spirit, and for your glory and for our good. And we ask this in Christ's name, and all God's people said... So I have a complicated relationship with Christmas music. Now, I I love Christmas music. That's not complicated. I do. Every year, I love to put on my favorite Christmas albums. But the complication comes is that I almost start listening to it too early, and I listen to too much. And so as a result, I peak too early. And so maybe by the 17th, the 18th today, I'm pretty much done with Christmas music, and I'm ready to move on. I wonder if there's anybody else that has that same experience. Uh, Another thing that I feel a little bit complicated with when it comes to Christmas music is oftentimes the sentiments expressed are sometimes at odds with how I I myself am experiencing my life at this time of year. You know, we speak about peace on earth, but oftentimes we can be racked with anxiety over the kids or over the parents fighting or over finals or over, uh, you know, over just anything that's happening in the world, you know, money that's, you know, our bank accounts, we can find ourselves experiencing anxiety. Or maybe we sing joy to the world, but in our homes, we don't know joy. We're feeling discouraged or depressed, or we're just sad because there's somebody who's not going to be with us around our Christmas table this year that was with us last year. And we can feel almost a dissonance sometimes between the songs we sing at Christmas and how we are actually experiencing life. And I wonder if you ever feel that way. You know, uh, one of the Christmas songs that I think captures this dissonance almost better than any other is that great Christmas hymn, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And some of you might not know that song. For me, it's one of my favorites. I think the best version of it is the one that was done by Johnny Cash. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, the old familiar carols. He said something like that. And wild and sweet, the words repeat, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And it's interesting, the world out of which that song came, it was written in the middle of the 19th century during the Civil War, and the author was Henry Wordsworth Longfellow. And he had had a tragic life to that point. Just two years earlier, he had lost his wife, who he loved dearly, in a tragic accident. She actually was burned to death, and he watched her die. And so he carried these dark memories with him over the next couple of years, and then during the Civil War, against his wishes, his son ran off and enlisted, and then within a year of joining, his son was shot, and he was severely wounded, and it negatively affected him for the rest of his life. And just after his, he had received word about his son, when he was feeling despondent about his wife, on December 8th, he heard the bells ringing around the city, uh, and there were the Christmas bells. And he sat down and he wrote these words, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And he he, he goes off about the peace on earth and goodwill to men that's kind of symbolized in these songs. But then the song takes this dark and ominous turn and he says this. 
He says, then in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong that mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill toward men. And as uh, the song finally resolves, uh, or the the final verse of the song resolves, and he says this, uh, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so while the final verse resolves kind of the tension, most of us don't live in that final verse. At least we don't live our whole life in that final verse where all of the tensions are resolved. During Advent, we oftentimes live in the tension, kind of this dissonance between all of the sentiment of joy and peace and the realities of our life that oftentimes rob us of joy and peace. I wonder if any of you can relate to that. Do you ever experience a mismatch between the songs we sing at Christmas and your lived experience, the pain and the difficulty you yourself experience in life. Well, if you do feel that way, if you've ever felt that way, you are not alone. Uh, We are gonna be looking today once again at the Advent prophet, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist actually was a guy who experienced this tension, this dissonance between the song sung at Christmas and his own lived experience. You know, John knew of songs sung at Christmas. Surrounding John's birth and Jesus' birth in Luke chapter 1, there are all kinds of songs, songs of Mary and songs of angels, songs about peace, songs about the day when all of the unjust kingly rulers would be brought low and the humble would be exalted. And God would establish his kingdom on earth. John knew these songs. He heard these songs. And yet his own experience fell in deep and profound tension with these songs. And it created this crisis in his life. And he started to wonder, like, what's going on? Like, am am I crazy? Is the faith I profess real? Is the Jesus that I was trying to prepare people for, is he really the Messiah? And in the story that we pick up today, John is wrestling with these tensions. And so look at what it says in in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. You'll have to, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there are Bibles in the pews in front of you. This is an exercise today. This was a divine failure in technology (laughs) so that we could pull out good old Bibles with their paper and ink and we can look at them. But turn those Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, or if you've brought a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Look at what it says. Now, when John heard in prison, stop there. I want you to notice John is no longer out in the wilderness preaching his fiery sermons. Now he's in prison. Why? Because he was out in the wilderness preaching fiery sermons. John was bold and courageous, and he was not afraid to speak truth to power. And there was a little incident that had happened in the nearby vicinity where John lived, where the leader, the king who uh, uh, deemed himself the king of the Jews, Herod, had taken, had, had entered into an affair with his brother's wife, and then ended up taking her as his own wife. So you think your Christmas dinners are rough? (laughs) Think of how awkward that would be. How you doing, Herod? How's my wife doing? (laughs) But John called Herod out on this. 
And he called him to repent. He said, God's judgment is coming. Herod didn't like it. So he had John locked up and put in prison. And John was in a cold, dark prison, chained up, facing his own execution. And it's here in the darkness of the prison cell that he begins to feel this dissonance between the message he preached and the songs he sang about Christmas. Repent, you know, one is coming who's going to make everything right, and yet I'm in prison. And John is feeling this dissonance. And then no doubt while John's in prison, he starts hearing about Jesus. And what are some of the stories that he's hearing while he's in prison? Well, he starts hearing about how Jesus is not going into Jerusalem and stirring up a militaristic revolt and is overthrowing the Roman government. That's what he was expecting he would hear. Instead, he hears that Jesus is wandering around these small villages throughout a podunk part of the Jewish world uh, around the Sea of Galilee. And while he's there, he's eating at dinner parties with people. And he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And John's like, what gives? I thought, I, where, where's the, where, you know, I thought this was the guy who's got to come with an ax in his hand to cut, you know, the trees down and to bring God's judgment. Where's the fire and where's the ax and when's the judgment coming? And when's Rome going to be judged? And when's Herod going to be judged? And none of that's happening and I'm in prison. And so he starts asking questions because his expectations about what God would do don't fit with what is happening in his life. And it almost always uh, leads to a crisis of faith. When what you expect God will do for you, he was going to bring me a spouse. He was going to get me a date. He was going to bring my children back to faith again. He, he was going to heal my mom you know, God was going to, I expected you to do these things and it's not happening. God's not delivering. He's not doing what I expected to do. And oftentimes that leads to questions and it led John to questions. And he's, and notice he, he, he puts the question to Jesus. Are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? He says, are you the one who is to come or should we look to another? Now think about the insult of this question. I mean, just imagine if uh, the elders at Christ Church called me in for my annual review, and they said, look, um, we, we've been noticing what you've been doing, and we don't like it. For the record, this hasn't yet happened. <laughs> but for the record, my annual review has not yet taken place, has it, Jim? But look, you're not meeting expectations. The church is not growing the way we want it to. You know, things are just, we don't know how you're spending your time. We don't like it. And look, do we need to look for a new pastor? This is in essence what John the Baptist, the one who Jesus says is the greatest born among women, the, the very prophet who came to prepare the way for the Messiah, you know, John the courageous, John who spoke truth to power, John the man of faith now is wrestling with doubts. Are you the one? Do we need to look for another Messiah? And I want you to see how Jesus responds to him. I want you to see how Jesus responds to us when we are wrestling with this mismatch between the promises of God and our lived experience, between the songs we sing at Christmas and the suffering and the difficulty and the trials we seem to be going through in life. 
Jesus speaks a word to him. He speaks a word to us that we need to pay attention to. Look at what he says. Listen, it's going to point them to, he's going to point John to, he's going to point us to the surprising presence of his kingdom. And look at what he says. Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the dead hear, or the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. He says, look, John, it's easy while you're in prison to only see the chains that bind you, to only hear Herod and his soldiers that mock you, to only see the harsh realities that are hurting you and afflicting you. But he says, John, I want you to see and I want you to hear another reality that is breaking into the world in the midst of the suffering and the pain. It's the reality of the presence of my kingdom. And notice how he speaks about his kingdom. He says, this is a kingdom that is going to bring a flood of healing and restoration to all of creation. And it's going to stretch into every sphere of life. He says, my kingdom that that I'm bringing, he says, it overcomes disability. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. It overcomes sickness. Lepers are cleansed. It overcomes alienation. The poor have the good news preached to them. It overcomes death by the power of resurrection. Jesus is saying, look, this might not be the shock and awe and fire and judgment and acts that you were expecting, but it is a comprehensive wave of healing on every level of existence. Healing and reconciliation and restoration stands at the heart of the kingdom that Jesus came to bring. And how Jesus frames his answer is intended to call John's mind back to the ancient prophet Isaiah and how he promised the one, the the future coming kingdom of God. In Isaiah chapter 35, verse 3 down to verse 6, he says this, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And then he says this, and then when the salvation of God breaks into the world, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. For the waters break forth in in the wilderness and the streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. He says, look, when the kingdom of God comes, the lame will leap and the blind will see and the deaf will hear and the poor will have good news preached to them. And Jesus says, I have come in my person to bring this kingdom into the world. And so John hears this, and this, Jesus is saying, look, the kingdom is present. It is breaking down. You don't need to look for someone else. I am the king who has come to bring this, this kingdom of healing and reconciliation. See, what Jesus is saying is saying, look, in me, you get a glimpse. You get a foretaste of the kingdom that is to come. And we've used this illustration before, but maybe not in a while because it's been COVID. And during COVID, we don't give free samples out at Costco. (laughs) 
But you know, it's like uh, the free samples at Costco, right? You walk around. I mean, one of the great tragedies of COVID, right? (laughs) But you know, you go and you just get a little succulent piece of that lasagna, and it's just a foretaste of what your life is going to be like when you bring all 10 pounds home with you, right? (laughs) And Jesus, in his own miraculous work in this world, was saying, in my life, when you see the blind give sight and the lame walk and and the deaf receive their hearing and the poor have good news preached them, he says, you're getting a sign and foretaste in my life of what things are gonna be, be like when the kingdom breaks out in all of its fullness and glory. You see, Jesus's miracles were not simply evidence and proof that he was the son of God. They certainly were that, but they were so much more. The theologian Jurgen Moltmann put it like this. He said, Jesus's healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only true natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Jesus' miracles are not some supernatural thing that break into this world that say, oh, that's God after all. No, Jesus' miracles are actually putting to right that which is demonized and dark and wrong in this world. And we get a glimpse into Jesus of what God's heart and what his passion and what his vision is ultimately for all creation. And so Jesus says, Hear and see in me, the kingdom is breaking in. But it is a surprising kingdom. And it's surprising on at least two fronts. Number one, it's surprising on where this kingdom breaks out. You know, where is it that Jesus is healing the sick and cleansing the lepers and giving sight to the blind? It's not in New York or Paris. It's like on the outskirts of Barstow, you know? Like, this, these are the small fishing villages around the Sea of Galilee. It literally is nowheresville. You know, my brother, a few years ago, uh, he was called to pastor a church out in Batesville, Arkansas. I had no idea where Batesville, Arkansas was. It's this small little community of 15,000 people out just around the Ozarks. And who goes to Batesville? Right? Nobody plans a vacation to Batesville. Nobody, there's no culture happening there. There's no life and vitality. It's not the center of like creativity and power and production. And and they don't have the military station there and the, the government's not there. I mean, I guess they have a little government there, but you know. But listen, where is it that Jesus's kingdom, this long awaited kingdom that would ultimately break out and flood all of creation, where does it begin? Where does it begin to spread? In the most unlikely obscure of places. To fulfill those words to Mary that in this new king, those who live in the opulent palaces in the centers of power, who are pretty okay with the current arrangement of things, this is not who this kingdom is for. This kingdom is for those on the margins and those who are obscure and those who are nameless and faceless and nobodies. My kingdom, my healing, this reconciliation is for these people. 
And so it's surprising where it breaks out, but it's also surprising how this kingdom moves forward. Look at what it says in verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. He says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Then what did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are on Instagram. No, they're in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist. In passing, just note, isn't it interesting that in the moment of John's crisis of faith, while he's struggling with doubt, Jesus still believes and names John stronger and truer than he might name himself in that moment. John might see himself in that moment, a man who is waffling, a man whose faith is shaky, certainly not a great man of faith. I'm in prison, I'm suffering. And Jesus names him truer and better than he names himself. He says, no, this is the greatest prophet ever born because this was the prophet that God raised up in order to prepare God's people for my coming into the world. But he goes on. He says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. After naming John truer and better than he names himself, he names all of us truer and better than we would name ourselves. He says, those who are least in the kingdom of heaven are greater than even John the Baptist. Jesus might look out at us and he might say, you know, you might look in the mirror and see yourself as being somebody who is weak and a nobody and I haven't made much of my life. You know, what have I really done with my life? You know, um, I remember a few years back watching a doc or a special on, um, uh, there was a TV special on John Adams. Did you guys ever watch this? And I remember just watching the founding fathers and all this stuff that they accomplished by the time they were like 35 you know, I was like, what have I done? You know, but you can feel that way. But here Jesus says, you, if you are part of my kingdom, you are a great one. And I have an eternal future for you. And you can rest in that. You are a child of God. You're a son or a daughter of the king. You are a great one. And then he says this, verse 13, or verse 12, and here's what I want to draw your attention to. He says, For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The kingdom of Jesus is surprising on these two fronts. On one, where it breaks out, among the obscure, in the podunk places, and among the poor and the powerless, in these little fishing villages around the Sea of Galilee. But I want you to notice how it moves forward. It moves forward as a kingdom that suffers violence. Do you see that in the text? Look back at the text. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. And this is surprising. It's paradoxical because you would expect if the kingdom of the true and living God broke into this world and it was spreading and the kingdom of God, you know, came into conflict with the kingdoms of man, with human kingdoms, 
with Herod and Pilate and Caesar and Rome, if those two kingdoms collided, that the victor would be God, right? That God would assert his own power and crush them in a military, you know, violent overthrow and they would just all be put down and there would be an ax and there would be a fire. But he says this kingdom breaks in not with military power and violence overthrowing Caesar and Herod and Pilate and uh, the corrupt religious leaders in Jerusalem. He says, no, this kingdom breaks in and it's a kingdom that is weak in the eyes of people and it suffers violence. Jesus is revealing something here about his kingdom and the ironic paradoxical way in which it will go and spread throughout the world. And listen, at its best, when the kingdom of God has truly taken a foothold in this current age of darkness and it's begun to spread and grow, it's always moved forward in this way. It has moved forward through sacrificial, self-giving, suffering love that doesn't inflict violence but endures violence for the sake of other people. This is a non-violent kingdom. This is a kingdom that moves forward through sacrificial, self-giving love. And this is a kingdom that most preeminently became embodied in the cross of Jesus Christ. How was it that God's, what was God's greatest act of ultimately bringing his victorious kingdom to break into this world and to break the stranglehold of darkness and sin and death in this world? It wasn't through getting more and more political power. It wasn't through celebrity. It wasn't through the market. And it wasn't through the military. God's kingdom broke into this world in its most powerful way through God's self-giving love in Jesus Christ on the cross. This is a kingdom that takes hold in this world and that spreads in this world when we who are agents of this kingdom embody the same cross-shaped love in how we engage in the world around us. So Jesus says to John and he says to us, he says, look, Look, you're struggling with the dissonance, with the disconnect, with the mismatch between the promises of God and your lived experience, between the songs we sing at Christmas of joy and peace and hope and all of that, and your own anxiety and your fears and your worries and, and, and your loneliness and your heartache that oftentimes afflicts you during this time of year. Jesus says, I want you to see and I want you to hear the surprising nature of my kingdom. I have inaugurated my kingdom in this world through my own work of healing the sick and cleansing the lepers and giving sight to the blind and eating with sinners. And I have inaugurated my kingdom in my cross and resurrection. And as my church has embodied the same love in how they have lived, how we have lived in this world, this kingdom has grown and, and spread in, in, in some ways looking weak, and suffering, and yet my kingdom has spread and grown throughout this world, and I want you to see it, and I want you to hear it. And when you see my kingdom at work, and when you hear of what I am doing in this world, it can strengthen and nourish your faith. 
And let me just apply this like this. Listen, when you are wrestling with doubt, when you are in a crisis of faith, and right now more and more, I just think, uh, you know, the next generation of, of young people who are growing up in churches are experiencing a crisis of faith. You know, there, there's just an epidemic of something called deconstruction where people have taken the faith of their youth and it's just not working for them and they're just pulling it apart. And some of you are in that place right now and you've kind of pulled things apart and you don't even, and some of it needs to be pulled apart. Some of it needs to be held on to. But, but, but you find yourself kind of like wrestling because what you expect should happen if God is at work in this world, does not match with what you are seeing in the world. And it doesn't match with what you're seeing in the church sometimes, which itself is corrupt and has hypocrisy. And so what are we to do? Well, when we are struggling, when we're in a crisis of faith, when we're asking these questions, when we're struggling with that, there's a lot of things we need to do. You should surround yourself with a community of faith that can support you and help nourish your faith, that can believe things that you have a hard time believing right now, almost on your behalf, and help you. You know, you, you need to in, engage in spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer because these things nourish and strengthen your faith. And if you neglect them over a long period of time, your faith will wither and you're gonna find yourself struggling more and more with doubt. You know, maybe for some of you, you need to engage in apologetics you know, and read apologetic stuff and read arguments for the faith when you're experiencing this mismatch and this crisis. Th those are all things we need to do. But on top of all of that, I want to encourage us today to do what Jesus is telling us to do in this text. He says, see and hear where my kingdom is at work in this world. Listen, it is so easy for you, for me, for us to see and to notice corruption and darkness. It's easy for us to notice, you know, stuff in the church that's hypocritical and self-righteous. There's stuff that is so easy to notice and name. It's in front of us. And if, if it's not in front of you, just go online or get on the news, right? If you just want a good dose of discouragement and darkness and anxiety-producing events that are happening in the world, just flip on the news, right? But Jesus is inviting us to see with the eyes of faith another reality that has broken into this world 2,000 years ago through Jesus. And that reality is his kingdom that has been inaugurated already. It has not come in its fullness. That is still to come in the future. That's why in Advent, we celebrate both Christ's first coming as well as his second coming. But even in this interim time, God is at work in this world. And so see it and notice it. You know, yesterday, uh, we had a, uh, a memorial service for Justin Sapp's mom, uh, Jackie. And when I listened to the stories told about Jackie, I bore witness to the power of God's kingdom of peace and goodness and joy breaking into this world in the life of this, this person who was embodying a spiritual power, the spirit of Jesus in her life and how she interacted with people. And, and there was beauty that came out of that life. 
You know, you can look around and you can see people who are opening their homes in, hospital, in, in hospitality and love, who are giving generously of their resources to care for the poor and the sick and the needy, who are sacrificing themselves and putting themselves in harm's way. We can participate in those things. We can get among those who are suffering and poor and sometimes see a, a level of faith and trust in God that's actually sustaining them. And there's a power there that's stronger than the powers of this world that defies the powers of this world at work in the hearts and lives of people. And we can witness with our eyes and hear with our ears the power of God's kingdom at work in this world. But in order to do that, you have to make a choice. You have to choose to, to, to say, I'm not gonna focus on, I'm not gonna keep my eyes fixed on and my ears open to only the stuff that makes me a cynical, depressed, anxious person. And there's a whole lot of stuff. There, it's like we inhabit a world like, we are, we are like a little flame that's surrounded by fuel that's constantly being thrown at us that would grow the fires of cynicism and anxiety and fears and despair. And so we need to choose to pull our eyes away from that and to see and to notice where God is at work in this world. Of course, preeminently, the place where our eyes should constantly be drawn back to, that place where God is at work in this world, is in Jesus himself, right? Going back and listening to the gospel writers as they testify about what Christ has done and what he's, what, he, what he's said and how he's acted and how he's lived and how he brought the kingdom into this world in ways that are so beautiful, that are so defiant of, of the ways of despair and anxiety and darkness in this world. And we can witness this in Jesus and we can be strengthened and say, there is another reality in this world that I will choose to orient my life around, that I will place my hope in, that I will not give in to the despair, to the anxiety, to the, the cynicism. There's something better and truer in this world that has been birthed into this world in Jesus. And so this Christmas, may we be a people that receive this message and hold on to it, this good news with hope, and see this alternate, this surprising, this counterintuitive, countercultural, paradoxical kingdom that is broken into this world and embrace it and orient ourselves around it and place our hope in it. Amen?